This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove, and thank you for listening to this podcast. We value our audience, and to help us enrich your experience, please complete a short five-question survey available in this episode's notes. Intellectual property law is engineered to foster innovation and creativity. While the way IP applies to traditional forms of creativity, such as music, painting, design, or even perfumes in some countries, is somehow understood and accepted, at least in principle, it may be less obvious when it comes to emerging popular forms of art. It has taken some time for street and body arts to get to the courts to have the rights of their authors discussed and clarified. How does IP apply to street and body arts? Who owns what? What are the competing rights at stake, in particular those of the owner of the building on which a graffiti is painted or the person bearing the tattoo? Beyond copyright, can trademark registration provide artists with an additional protection? And how do all of this play out on the emerging art's favorite exhibition forum nowadays, being social media? Eamon Schoek is a partner with the law firm Briefa based in London, in the UK. Eamon advises clients on the protection, management, exploitation and enforcement of IP, He advises a broad spectrum of clients, including authors, agents, publishers, but also clothing, furniture, and graphic designers. Eamon, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Brand New. Thanks, Audrey, and thanks for having me. Before we discuss current questions regarding IP in emerging arts, could you present us the various IP rights that gravitate around graffiti, tattoos or, or makeup, not only copyright, but also trademark or design rights? Sure, no problem. So as your question suggests, there, there isn't just one IP right that's relevant to street art and body art and other types of emerging art forms. There, there are a collection of rights that we need to think about and talk about. The first right, as you suggest, is copyright. And copyright is a very important and valuable right for artists for a few reasons. The first is that it arises automatically and for free. And so when you compare it with registrable rights like patents and design rights, that's really, really important because there's no expense involved in, in the right arising. Another reason that copyright is, is a very valuable right is that it protects a broad spectrum of subject matter. So it protects literary works, artistic works, recordings, architectural works. And so if you're operating in an emerging art scene like street art or body art, copyright is your first port of call to try and find a way to protect this new art form. And then I guess the third reason that copyright is, is very useful and important is it, the protection lasts for a long time. In most territories and for most types of works, protection lasts for the lifetime of the author or the creator plus 70 years. And again, if you compare copyright to patents and design rights um, where protection is much shorter, that makes copyright, the, the length of protection makes copyright very valuable. But moving on then from copyright, there are also design rights, which protect new products. And again, it's possible for 
artists to try and supplement their copyright protection by achieving another type of protection through registration of their art as a design. And whereas the requirement for copyright is originality, the artwork or the or the creation must originate with the author. With design rights, the key test is novelty. The design must be new. It must be different to anything else that's already out there. And I suppose in practical terms, the significance of being able to achieve registered design protection is you don't have to prove copying. So when it comes to enforcing your rights with copyright, if you want to be able to prevent someone else from using artwork that's similar to yours, you have to prove that they actually copied you. So there's very often a high evidentiary burden there. Mm-hmm. Whereas with design right, it's about demonstrating that you have the right and showing your registration certificate or whatever evidence you have, and then just showing that those two designs create the same overall impression. The third right that, that can be very relevant for artists, as you mentioned, is, is trademarks. And again, the, the, the reason for that is that you can achieve a registration certificate. You have a publicly accessible register that shows that you're the owner of this image, which has been registered as a trademark. And so again, like registered designs, you avoid that evidentiary issue of having to have all of these documents, having to have evidence of creation and things like that. The difference with trademarks is that trademarks are about protecting commercial signs, trade signs, trademarks. So whereas copyright is all about protecting authors and protecting the fruits of creative labor and creative endeavors, trademarks are about business and commerce. It's about protecting a trade sign. And so if you're going to ask the government for that type of monopoly, and that's what IP rights are, they're monopoly rights, they're rights that allow you to control the use of something. If you're going to ask the government for that type of monopoly, you have to show them that you're operating in a commercial sphere. So you have to show, for example, that the artwork that you're seeking to register as a trademark is going to be used in relation to particular goods and services that fall within classifications. And you have to say at the outset what that commercial activity is going to be and what these goods and services are going to be. But even even more onerous than that, as time goes on, depending on the territory you're operating in, you may be called upon periodically to show that you're still using the trademark as a designator of trade origin in commerce. And so that can be a challenge for street artists, for body artists, where maybe the reason for getting the trademark at the outset was to get that trademark certificate, to get that publicly accessible record, that evidence of ownership. But then as time goes on, if they don't commercialize it, if they're not printing that artwork on T-shirts or lunchboxes or backpacks or whatever it is, if you don't have that evidence of actual trade, of commerce, of use as a trademark, you may find that your right is at risk and you could actually end up losing your trademark. Eman, with the rising public appreciation for street art, uh, the issue of the IP rights surrounding graffiti is of growing importance in today's art market. Uh, Street art is consistently copied and reprinted, as you said, on clothing, posters, merchandise, and on all media. It's even sometimes excavated from its surface for exhibition and sale in auction houses and galleries. Just just an illustration of this. Um, As famous British street artist Banksy uh, created a mural on the side of a building and a gallery removed his work, the owners of the building later claimed that the mural was worth an estimated $100,000, proceeding to file for damages against the gallery that had removed the mural. So several complex legal questions have arisen on the, on the IP front. 
Do artists retain IP entitlements that can prevent the copying, removal, sale and destruction of these works without the artist's consent in all circumstances, even when paternity is not clearly disclosed or claimed? The short answer is no, it's, it's not always that simple and there isn't, it isn't always easy for the, the artist to prevent destruction, sale and, and the other things you described. And I think the starting point is an understanding of the two different categories of rights that exist. And the first category is economic rights. And economic rights relate to the creative work or the artistic work itself, such as the right to prevent reproduction. And then the second category of rights is moral rights. And moral rights relate to the author himself or herself rather than the work. Um, and the author's moral rights are things like the right to be identified as the author and the right to object to derogatory treatment of the artistic work. There are differences in the way that those rights function. So economic rights can be bought and sold and licensed and given as security, whereas moral rights cannot be assigned or transferred, although they can be waived. But I guess the, the common element between those two categories of rights is that the ownership of the right and the ability to assert the right is derived from authorship and therefore requires identification of the author. So in order to assert any of these, these rights to prevent reproduction, to prevent derogatory treatment, the first thing that the author would have to do is identify himself or herself. What the author can actually achieve will depend on whether the graffiti artist or the street artist is, is willing to identify themselves and also then whether they have control over both the intellectual property and the physical property in question. So, you know, one of your questions is, can you prevent copying? Can you prevent commercialization? And the answer to that question is usually yes, assuming the street artist is willing to identify themselves. And they won't always be willing to do that. And, you know, where sometimes one of the issues with graffiti in particular is that the circumstances surrounding the creation of the graffiti or the street art may have involved the commission of a crime. But then when you start to talk about things like preventing the sale of, let's say, the building, preventing the sale of a piece of the building, a wall, preventing destruction, preventing alteration, that original street art, it then becomes slightly more problematic because it involves the artist in trying to control the physical property in that building. There are ways that the artist can potentially try and exercise control. If the alteration, for example, involved derogatory use or derogatory treatment of the art, the artist could potentially exercise moral rights. But the threshold for allowing the artist to interfere with the property rights of the owner of the building is very, very high. You'd need to show a significant problem or significant derogatory or treatment of the artistic work. And similarly, you know, to prevent to prevent removal or, or sale or, or destruction, it would be very, very difficult for the artist to do that because in, in most cases, the property rights of the owner of the building or the owner of the physical structure will at that point uh, trump the intellectual property rights of the street artist. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. 
So when Amazon opened its new headquarters in Seattle, in Washington state, uh, it took some street paintings created on the walls uh, of a former building on that site and installed them inside the new headquarters. When the street artists found out, they cried full and demanded recognition. What can street artists do in similar circumstances? So there are a number of factors that are uh, relevant here, Audrey. And I think the first factor relates to the circumstances surrounding the creation of the street art and specifically who owns the wall structure or property and then whether the street artist had permission. So if the artist owns the property or had permission, then they're in a much stronger position to identify themselves and, and to assert their rights. If the artist doesn't own or doesn't have permission, then they may be less willing to identify themselves um, and less willing to, to assert their rights for fear of consequences, such as consequences for civil and criminal trespass. Although this is a practical obstacle, the fact that the creation of the, of the art involved the commission of a crime doesn't affect subsistence itself. The second factor, and this is where I'll touch on the advice to artists, is the steps that the artist may have taken to secure their rights in the first place. And so the, the first kind of thing to investigate or the first thing that an artist might have done is to create an earlier dated and signed version of the art on paper and then to maintain a paper or digital copy of the creation of that artistic work. And the advantage of doing that is, as I said, copyright arises automatically. And so copyright will then vest in that original paper version of the artwork, which doesn't involve um, the, the commission of any crime or, or any other issue. And so the copyright owner will be the artist and they'll be happy to assert their rights on the basis of that original work. Another step that the artist could take is to potentially register that copyright, if it's possible to do that in, in the territory in question. And that then creates a public record of the copyright and makes enforcement of that right easier. The, the street artist could also potentially supplement their rights by registering a design if the design is, is novel. Um, and similarly, the artist could potentially register a trademark that would then give them another tool in their, in their arsenal and would potentially help them to enforce their right in this type of circumstance. In recent years, uh, the social media explosion has transformed street art from a nuisance to a promotional tool. What are the rules and norms when it comes to using street art in social media posts without the artist's consent? And what recommendations would you give to social media users, influencers or agencies? So, yeah, this is a really good question and really interesting. We, we, we had a real world example of this a couple of years ago where we actually acted for a group of London street artists who got together and created a mural and disused property in London. And the case arose because the mural was then subsequently used in an advertising campaign by Boohoo.com. The advertising campaign involved an image of a famous footballer posing in front of this mural as is often the case, it was posted on Instagram. It was viewed, I think, 100,000 times or more. And no permission was sought from the artists and no payment was made for the artists. And now in that case, we were able to negotiate a settlement between the group of artists and uh, Boohoo.com so that they were compensated for the use of their art and the commercialization of their art in that way. But there was two really, really significant points um, that tipped that case in our favor. The first is that the artists had been invited to create the art 
as part of a, a paint jam which had been organized by a, a group that celebrates street art. So there was no issues there with the artists having having committed any crimes or or, or there was no other issue around, around lawfulness. So the artists were very prepared and willing to assert their rights. And the second significant point is that very often when you are trying, even if you can establish your rights and even if you can enforce your rights, the claim is frequently not worthwhile because there's no evidence of how much that art is worth. And so for street artists and graffiti artists whose means might be limited, there's the risk that the value of the claim might be outweighed by the cost of actually bringing the claim in the first place. But the fact that we had evidence of how much the street art was actually worth in a commercial sense in this case uh, allowed us to to make a much more persuasive mm-hmm. settlement argument to Boohoo at the pre-action stage. Mm-hmm. So clearly, as you say, you know, there's been a sea change in the way this graffiti and street art is perceived in places like Shoreditch in London, in Bristol, Glasgow, Brooklyn, Melbourne, I think is the street art capital of the world now. Street art is increasingly in vogue. Um, it's increasingly commercially valuable. And for that reason, it's not just tolerated, but encouraged by cities. And so then I think in terms of the accepted norms, it's widely accepted now that artists do own the rights in anything that they create. And so your first port of call, if you're an influencer or an agency or a business who's intending to, to use street art or commercialize it in some way, you must try and get a license. And that anything more than incidental inclusion is going to require that license. If you've made a creative choice or a creative decision to choose that art, to use it, to include it in a photograph in any way that's more than you know truly incidental and in the background you you must try and get that permission if you don't know who the artist is or if you can contact the artist himself or herself your next port of call is to is to speak to the venue or to speak to the person who owns the building that you're using and potentially try and see if they have cleared the rights with the artist if they've compensated the artist Mm -hmm. and then i suppose the next step down is if it's not possible to contact the artist if it's not possible to contact the venue you should at least include an attribution notice you should at least say where the photograph is taken and you know the source of the art and then i think it's for it's for users to to consider their risk and to say if it's just a once-off post if there's no commercial use the risk is probably lower but if you're intending to commercialize the art as an influencer on social media there is a higher risk Uh, We briefly talked earlier uh, about the famous artist Banksy. Uh, Despite the general tendency of courts to uphold claims for IP protection from street artists, Banksy efforts to use trademark law instead of copyright to protect his famous flower thrower painting from uh, commercial replicas was thwarted by a European Union decision last fall. Could you please walk us briefly through this case and, and tell us the main takeaway when it comes to trademark protection for graffiti art? Sure. So the background to the case is Banksy is a, is a well-known street artist and he created an iconic flower thrower mural on the side of a garage in Jerusalem a number of years ago. And having previously stated that uh, copyright is for for losers, he then sought to exercise monopoly control over the artwork by registering it as a trademark. However, there was a company in the UK, Full Colour Black, who is a greeting card producer, and they wanted to be able to freely reproduce the flower thrower artwork on greeting cards. And so they challenged the trademark registration for the artwork on the grounds that it was filed in bad faith. And specifically, they argued that Banksy never intended to actually use the trademark as a trademark and that he only sought registration of the trademark to avoid having to rely on copyright, 
which would have compromised his anonymity, as we've discussed. And there was some conflicting EU law on what did and didn't constitute bad faith. But in this case, the cancellation division at the EU IPO ultimately concluded that Banksy did indeed lack any intention to use the trademark as a trademark, i.e. as a designator of trade origin. And they also noted that Banksy had set up a store in London called Gross Domestic Product, which was obviously a, a play on words and a commentary on an anti-capitalist commentary, I suppose. And they, they concluded that he had only set up that store after the application was filed and with the express purpose and intention of artificially creating evidence of use of the trademark. And I think he said this publicly on, on Twitter and on social media. He was quite clear about what he was you know, attempting to do. But ultimately, the, it was concluded that the, the trademark was filed in bad faith and the trademark was cancelled. So I suppose the significance uh, or the takeaway is potentially problematically expansive interpretation of bad faith. And I think in practical terms, you know, it, it will still be possible for artists to supplement their copyright protection with trademarks. But as a result of this case, I think rights are now much more open to scrutiny and challenge and, and trademarks who seek to supplement artistic protection copyright protection with trademark protection, we need to be much more vigilant about demonstrating that they do actually have a bona fide intention to use the trademark as a trademark. Now we'll talk about uh, tattoos. Tattoo disputes have flourished in courts due to the increasing popularity of the practice and the fame of many tattoo artists fueled by social media again. Uh, as for street art, the tide has begun to turn for body art artists as well. However, the fact that the protected work is actually displayed on another person's body confronts IP protection with the competing rights of a person to use their own likeness and image. I, I would like to mention briefly uh, a case in the US. So it's an ongoing dispute between the rapper Cardi B and the tattoo artist Kevin Brophy Jr. that has illustrated the potential IP risks associated with tattoos. Uh, this case centers on a photograph used on the cover of a musical recording by Cardi B, depicting a male model with a highly distinctive tattoo on his back. Eamon, who is entitled to exploit the rights subsisting in the tattoo? The tattoo artist who creates the original tattoo or the person on whose body the tattoo appears? Really, really interesting, Audrey. Thanks for the question and for that example. The, the basic position is that assuming the tattoo design meets the relatively low originality threshold to qualify as an original artistic work, copyright will vest automatically in the tattoo artist as the author. But in practice, I think it will very often depend on the contract or the agreement between the, the tattoo artist um, and their client. So in some cases, the client may have come to the tattoo artist with an original design concept, and then the, the tattoo artist may have agreed that all the rights in the final tattoo design would be assigned to the client or transferred to the client, in which case um, that individual person will be free to use or commercialize the tattoo design as they wish. In an alternative scenario, the parties might agree license terms where the artist retains the ownership of the copyright in the original design and is therefore free to reuse the design and to commercialize it as they wish, whereas the client is free under the terms of that license to do whatever they wish with their own tattoo, including removing the tattoo, altering it or amending it, 
and maybe then licensing and commercializing their own image and likeness, which would involve the reproduction of the tattoo art in that context. And we've seen some cases on this. You mentioned one US case. In another case in the US, a court said that uh, LeBron James could license his own image, including his tattoo, to appear in a video game. And again, I think that was a sensible compromise between the rights of the tattoo artist on the one hand and the freedom of the individual to commercialize their own likeness on the other. Uh, and similarly, in, in Europe, a Belgian court confirmed that once a tattoo was applied, the individual rights essentially trump the rights of the tattoo artists and, and the tattoo artist's rights can't be used to prevent the person being photographed or, or doing other things with their own image and likeness. It's fair to say that in this new area, as with many emerging areas, you will have differences you know, in different territories around the world. But I think the prevailing view at the moment seems to be that once the artist is applied to the body, the individual rights to privacy and uh, freedom of movement and uh, freedom of bodily autonomy will have to take preference or will have to take precedence over the rights of the tattoo artist. And, and in the commercial context, that means that the person will have to be free to commercialize and use their own likeness and image, even if that involves the reproduction of the tattoo. Let's push now our discussions even further. Uh, what about other body art, such as makeup or hair designs? Uh, how do you see IP protection unfolding in this setting uh, where the work itself, its outlook, characteristics and even longevity is even more dependent on the person who bears it? As with tattoos, the rights of the person will almost certainly impose some limitations Um, on the artist's ability to enforce their rights in, in the original art, or, or rather in the original work. And I think the other issue with, with makeup and hair designs in particular is, is permanence mm -hmm. and the requirement that copyright works must be fixed or there must be a fixed work in which copyright can subsist. But again, you know, interestingly, we, we've seen case law on this before. So in the US, I think a court in around uh, 2000 That the, that the makeup used in the Broadway musical Cats was sufficiently fixed to give rise to, to copyright, even though obviously the makeup could ultimately be wiped off. In the UK, there was some old case law that used to say that makeup wasn't protectable because it could be washed off. But in more recent case law involving designs incorporated into powder makeup palettes, we've seen decisions where courts have held basically that that is sufficiently fixed to attract copyright protection. And it's, it's also been emphasized in UK cases that just because something is transient in nature, such as an ice sculpture or a sandcastle sculpture or, you know, a wedding cake design, that those types of things shouldn't prevent copyright attaching to that particular type of artistic work. And I think, again, it goes back to the idea of copyright as a very, very flexible, broad and encompassing right, which can protect different types of art forms. So certainly, you know, in the UK, the trend is moving towards broader recognition of what can constitute artistic works and works of artistic craftsmanship. Um, under EU law, it's even more expansive. You know, courts don't focus so much on categorization. They, they look more at whether the end work is an expression of the artist's own intellectual creation. So I think in terms of artists being able to recognize and enforce rights, the future is bright. Courts are, courts are using copyright in, in more expansive ways. And then I think in terms of a practical tip, try to avoid any fixation issues. So try to avoid that hurdle where someone claims or a court claims or it's argued that because your art form isn't sufficiently fixed 
copyright can't attach. And I think the way to avoid that is to create earlier paper or digital versions of that artwork. So if it's a makeup design, if it's a hair design, if it's a food design, cake design, put it on paper first so that you have that copyright protection in the 2D design. Consider registering it as, as a design potentially consider registering it as a trademark. And then when that art is replicated and commercialized in the form of makeup, maybe when it's commercialized photograph put on social media, having that original 2D design and that record potentially registered may put artists in a stronger position to enforce their rights. I now have a few rapid fire questions. What's the copyright protections frontier of tomorrow? I think artificial intelligence is probably the big frontier of tomorrow. You know, we've seen a massive increase in the creation of inventions and artistic works using artificial intelligences. And we already know that under patent law in the US and in Europe, an artificial intelligence can't be an inventor. So it's reasonable to assume or we can at least question whether an artificial intelligence can be an author. A word that would summarize the last year and the one you expect for 2021. Okay, my 2020 word, I think, is challenging. Businesses had to adapt, governments, healthcare, politics, democratic norms, a lot of challenges. And my word for 2021 that I expect is rebuilding, uh, a year of rebuilding. Necessity is the mother of invention, and I think businesses and governments are going to need innovators to, to rebuild. Who are your role models? Given the year that we've just had, I think my role model would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's obviously a U.S. jurist, former U.S. jurist, now deceased. And she's renowned for being hardworking, forward-thinking, progressive. And having read a bit about her life, um, I, I'm aware that she, that she had a very close personal friendship with um, Antoinette Scalia, who would be someone who was maybe her opposite in terms of legal perspectives and maybe political perspectives, but someone with whom she maintained a close personal friendship. They used to go to the opera together. And I think looking at everything in the world around us now, it's, it's nice to see and it's nice to think and, and follow the example of people who can differ professionally and, and maybe politically, but, but have uh, respectful differences of opinions and, and peacefully coexist. Thank you so much, Eamon. Thanks, Audrey. My guest today was Eamon Shaw, partner with the law firm Briefa based in London. We would love to hear from you about Brennan New. Please help us out and take the brief five questions survey you can find in these podcast notes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.